Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you so much for listening and tuning in. Before I introduce my guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast. It's called A Gift from Adversity. And the subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. I was born and raised in Japan, and I experienced all of this growing up. After I published my book, which is available on, on Amazon, I got a lot of messages from different places. Mainly, people are sharing their adversities. This year, 2022, after I published my book in 2020, I felt compelled to create a platform where people can talk about adversity, but not only that. Tools that they use to overcome and a gift that came from it. And it's been nothing but powerful, empowering, inspiring experience for me. And I appreciate all of the guests so far that came tonight. We are very excited to have Sonny Tran for our episode 75. Hi, Sonny. Thank you so much for coming to A Gift from Adversity. It's awesome. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm glad to be 75. That's a good number.、Huh. Yes, absolutely. So, Sonny, can you tell our audience who you are and then what you do and where are you coming in from today? Well, my name is Sonny Tran.、Um, I came from Vietnam, but I'm actually today I'm in Philadelphia. I've been in this country over 40 years.、Um, who I am is I actually have helped entrepreneurs like, you know, make money in their businesses for over what, 20 years. You know, I own a bank, I own an insurance company, did all this, you know, financial stuff. But I find out that most people's problems are actually in their mind and themselves. Do you have any social media websites?、Um, That you can share with our audience? Sure, sure. Yeah. I have a YouTube channel building. It's,、um, you can find it. The handle I just got was like Sunny Finds the Money.、Um, website, sunnyfindsthemoney.com.、Um, Instagram's the same, Sunny Finds the Money. And、um, yeah, <laughs> that's、uh, some of my websites. And it's Sunny Tran under Facebook. Great. Well, thank you for that. So, Sonny, let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So, can you share our audience? What was your adversity? Well, the adversity that we had was,、um, I guess, is the best as a start in the beginning, which my grandmother, she died at the age of 43 years old. And on her deathbed, she was yearning and saying, she tamted, which in Vietnamese means that she wanted to eat meat or taste it even. She actually never got to eat meat her whole life. At 43 years, she, she died, and we couldn't get it to her with my mom because we didn't have money. You know, being poor was really the crime in Vietnam, in a third world country. And in my country, a lot of people they say, 
you die from chung yaw. So chung yaw in Vietnamese translated to English is you die from a cold. Well, the truth is you don't die from a cold. There's no money or anything. Doctors have to be paid to do things. And that's kind of what happened. And she had 10 children. And, you know, we're farmers, so we only could eat what you could plant. And that was kind of the whole, her whole life. And it burned a hole in my mother's soul. She vowed never to happen. And we escaped Vietnam. Um, from Vietnam, we went to, those after the war to, um, what is it? There's the Philippines. We skipped that to Indonesia. And with that trip, um, it's kind of a long way. It was... Um, 775 nautica miles we travel five knots we spent five days at sea in those 10,000 i mean 1096 miles from vietnam from the port of yung tao and the reason we left is because when you lose the war you know how all like you know the americans they pulled out of vietnam all the communists <laughs> they come down and they killed a lot of males because really that was a civil war that a lot of people didn't like and when they do that they kill the males and my mom didn't want me to serve in the army so we were you know at sea brought basically only the clothes that we had on our back we were fortunate enough that my uncle wanted to like it was a cousin uncle save us family is really important to us back then and you know we did that trip spent six months in malaysia and finally got to the land of opportunity of america where even then, we lived, what, eight people? Yeah, eight people, nine people, actually, because there was another uncle that came um, in a one-bedroom apartment. And we lived in those projects for quite some time. And we we're fortunate enough to, you know, have other people help us that could speak the, the language Vietnamese and English, because actually, I was born Lu. We came to this country because I'm the son of my parents. So my name became Son. And Americans, it's easier for them to translate that into Sonny, because like, son, son, you know what I mean? So, yeah, that was definitely what we faced was poverty and like, how do you like do and have a better life and all that. And a lot of that has been with other people helping, you know, people that spoke both English and Vietnamese. And I see that today, if you can speak more than one language, it's actually responsibility to help others. Sonny, so in these five minutes or so that you shared with us is like a movie. It's crazy that how you eloquently told us in such a short period of time of someone's life and being on a boat going after the war to a different country, two different countries, and then finally came to America. So how old were you? Do you remember being on the boat? Um, I was 18 months old. Um, I don't remember, but I actually had stories. My, my mom was like telling me, and I looked up a lot of like the history back then. There was like pirates, robberies, plunder, sex trafficking, rape. It was really dangerous. Um, United Nations High Commission estimated 200, 400,000 people died at sea from drowning, priors, dehydration. They didn't have enough water. Many boats never made landfall. The one that we were on only had 69 people on it. And I can tell you that what's kind of like really interesting about that is that that same age, my son, when he was 18 years old, my mom never stepped on a boat again. So I was able to, at the same time, when my son was 18 months old, we were on a luxury cruise. First time ever I was on a cruise. My son and my mom's first time ever on a boat since, you know, having that boat leaving Vietnam was like 
things can change in a generation. And that's why I think that it's important to go after like your dreams and everything. So my mom was a strong lady. That adversity is like, she was kind of like single mom. She actually was in an arranged marriage too, Jerry. So that was another thing too. Once grandma died, um, we're poor. And my grandfather was like, you need to get married and married her to like a little upper middle class family. So my parents actually hate each other. <laughs> like they like each other. They're really dysfunctional, I guess, kind of relationship thing. And honestly, you know, I vowed never to do that, but <laughs> I'm in a relationship that's kind of like that too. It's very rough. It's like my mom and she's the most negative person I ever met. And I, you know how Asian families are. You have your tiger mom and all that. Well, yeah, that was like the family and things like that too. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot there too, but she had to be strong. She was the oldest of 10 children. She had to cook and do everything for the other children. And when, you know, lost her mom, you know, she was in her twenties. So the rest of the family had to eat still, you know, and it was mom to cook. Cause dad was, um, her dad was in the military and you know how a lot of people have PTSD and everything from that. He wasn't a very kind or nice man at all. He was very violent and all that. My mom wanted to be a nun. I guess that didn't work out, you know, once, you know, grandma lost. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of normal, actually, in the country there. When you don't have decisions, you don't get to make decisions. People make decisions for you and you just have to survive, you know. So when she finally came to America, did she fly from somewhere? That part of the story, I... I don't like, I never really asked on, on that one. I know that they, we spent six months in Indonesia and I believe that you had to fly from, from that part. I will get more of that. Story. That's a good question. You even asked questions that I didn't. I was like, man, that's kind of like rough. And I was like, man, because I always hear the things of she doesn't want to get married and all this stuff and how she hates my father and all this stuff. But it was more like, they're still together now. I thought like after like the kids growing up that she would move to Vietnam and stayed there, but they're still together fighting every day. You know, she's wow. dominant in the relationship. So my father became weaker and I can see those personality traits like transfer to me. How I just, you know, let my wife <laughs> or fiance win all the time in arguments and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Did, did, yeah. It was that we, we were sponsored by my, um, my, grandmom's sister my grandfather's sister um here and we came here to build a life and we couldn't survive we first moved to ohio and there was no jobs or anything then we moved to atlantic city because you know back then you know, i know some people watch boardwalk empire the casinos are big oh anyone can get a job at the casinos right so that was the next step and we moved into a ghetto in atlantic city you know so that was kind of how we did things so how was your English growing up? I spoke no English. My family spoke no English. Um, I was actually, they thought I was like um, really slow or retarded. We went to Catholic school, thank God, you know what I mean? But because my mom did have money to do that for religion because faith is really important to us. And I think that's important to everyone, no matter what religion you are. But um, with that is like, I didn't speak English kindergarten, first grade. I remember I gave... Uh, this this girl a valentine's card wrote a construction paper i had no idea what to say i kind of knew it was kind of valentine's but i didn't really i couldn't because i was speaking vietnamese no one knew what the freak i was saying i said nobody 
and or first grade. But in second grade, I learned English and I started like doing things and I got transferred to another school at that time. I do remember kindergarten, first grade. I just really didn't remember being able to communicate with people, but just saying stuff in Vietnamese and they're just like that, no idea. But I do remember that we had no money. And in first grade, um, a nun, you know, gave me a quarter. I don't know how she had to like, so I can eat a bag of potato chips. And I was so grateful for that bag of potato chips. I didn't know what that was, you know? I do remember that. And I was like, wow. And now I look back and I think back and I was like, man, you know, this is a great country and people really want to support and help people. And that's the only way that people can get by and survive other people loving you. Wow. So after the second grade that you start to speak English mm -hmm. and did you experience any discrimination or bullying growing up? Oh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of that. <laughs> I was little, you know, obviously, we we're starving our whole lives and everything. So I was really little compared to everybody else. And, you know, we lived in the in a bad neighborhood. The projects, I would say probably like 80 percent of it was African-American. Um, we're not African and we're not white. So <laughs> that, that's really it. You know what I mean? We're like other. So we got grouped in as Asians with like um, Indians, you know, so that was like interesting. And that was that way through high school. So, yeah, there, there was a lot of that. We got robbed a lot. My dad, I still remember, like maybe third or fourth grade or something, he went to get some fried chicken and he had like $10 and think, oh, you know, I almost forgot. I need to bring this up. This was like probably one of my oldest memories was when I was probably like three years old. And this is still something that like I still need to get over. And I was working with Tony Robbins and these other people to get through is that I really wanted a change bag because that was in the 80s, you know, early 80s is that. People, women used to carry money in a, a little coin bag purse that you put coins in, right? And I wanted to hold it. I was sitting in a shopping cart. So that was one of my strongest memories. And I wanted to hold the bag of change. My mom was like, okay, cool. I, I can know because I kept on crying. I remember in a shopping cart, she gave it to me. I remember the, the jacket I wore. It's like a flannel jacket. And I held it. Then a tall man, you know, we live in Prague, snatched that pocketbook change bag thing. And I don't know how much money was in it. It was probably like maybe $10 or something, but that was groceries for the week. And I got what I wanted from mom because she, she loved me and I was crying a lot and all that other stuff. But once you lost that, we didn't have groceries. We walked home. I remember the feeling of like, so disappointed how mad my mom was or sad. And I never really dared even ask him today, like what happened? I know that was for groceries and I don't know. We didn't have money for groceries then. And it's because I wanted, I got what I wanted. And because of me getting what I wanted, like we didn't eat, you know, I don't really know what happened. I still don't even know, but that is one of my, those memories. And it's held me back to like me not respecting myself and not like deserving. Like I would do more for others. And Tony teaches that too, than I would do for myself. And I never want to do anything for myself. I always feel like I need to be a martyr and maybe that feeling or emotion is like caught up or stuck. And it's like, I don't want to have anything for myself. I always want to do for others. And I'm still even like, I'm 43 now trying to fight that. Be like, I do deserve things. And I do deserve like to be loved and all these other things that, you know, but yeah, that happened too. Um, discrimination. And, you know, I played football back then um, in high school. I was actually the second fastest person, in the whole team. So yeah. 
you know, I guess football, I was like 115 pounds on the football team too. <laughs> so I was little still, you know, but, um, I was really fast. Um, yeah, I got beat up for my own team. So a lot of times when we were in a pile, cause people were like really angry because, um, you know, I'm not supposed to be the fastest, I suppose, you know, and things like that. And, you know, I was the only Asian person on the football team too. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it was rough. It's like, you know, Lang City, you know, they like back then it was a crime zone. Like my first day in high school, because we went from Catholic school to public school. Um, there was three fights in this. There was like race wars between, um, you know, African-Americans and white people. And there's Hispanic wars and things. And my first day of high school, like one person got their their um, their skull mat bashing like three inches, you know, hit with a trash can or something. I don't know what I have. And someone else got their eye stabbed with like a pen. And I was like, man, this is really rough public school. I had no idea what they didn't expect. That's public school. I was like, and the cops came in with riot gear and they tear gassed the high school. So you can probably look at history. Let's see, that school was really bad back then. So that's kind of how it is when you don't have money, I guess, you know. But yeah, I grew up where people would rob each other, jump each other as normal. They'd do something called run your pockets. Like they'll pat your pockets down. You have money. Good thing we didn't have money because we're broke. You know, that's kind of how it was. But you still get beat up anyway because you still have to make an example, I suppose, out of people. Um, but yeah, that was my high school too. And I got sent away to Colorado to college. See, some of these things you're making me, I've forgotten all about that. I, I was shipped to Colorado because I was into like, man, we got to do something, have a better life. And the reason I was shipped out, my parents saw me like, I was like, man, I was like, you know, I need to make money. And I had like these science experiments, like this triple beam balance as a scale. And, you know, the big thing in Atlantic City was like selling drugs and marijuana and stuff like that. And, you know, I was like, man, I was like, you can buy a whole pound of weed for like 400 bucks and you can sell a lot of little dime bags. I was like, man, that's a good business because <laughs> I was already entrepreneur back then. You know, my parents caught wind of me having like a scale. Like, what is that for? And I was like, oh, it's a science experiment. My uncle knew better, obviously, since he knows more English. And he sent me away. I was really angry. It was my senior year, too. Um, I was a junior in high school and the girl that I was dating, she became like prom queen. And I was like, man, I was really angry that <laughs> I didn't get to do that either. But yeah, yeah, I guess there was, you know, how not having money and things created a different mindset. Wow. You brought that out. Of me. I didn't think that was like not my plan of talking about any of that stuff at all. Interesting. So you kind of mentioned a little bit about fried chicken. You went, your dad got robbed when he was trying to get a fried chicken too. Yeah, KFC. It was Kentucky Fried Chicken. It was literally only like three blocks from our house. What happened? He, he just got jumped and beat up and it took his $10 or something. He only had $10. It's not like a lot of money. And he came home and I was like, you know, there was not only, I was like a little kid at the time. I, I don't know what grade, I, I think it might've been like second or third grade even. You know, I don't like, all I remember is like, hey, you have to get trick chicken because we caught Vietnamese like gajian. So I think at that time I probably didn't even speak English, you know. So it might have been really second, like you know, right at between first grade and second grade. I don't really remember. I just remember that was what happened. And later I asked, like, you know what I mean? I remember how traumatic it was. He had to kind of go to the hospital and things like that. He came together because my mom and dad actually worked together when we made that voyage to Vietnam. Like they were separate. He actually got to go America because family had money and my mom was stuck in Vietnam and it was my uncle. He's like, what? You're still here. And she was pregnant with me. And I guess my dad didn't even know I was born. So that was like a whole nother mess in itself. Yeah. My thoughts aren't really collected. It's interesting. Yeah. 
So what happened when you went to Colorado? I was angry. You know, I was angry. I was angry. It was my senior year. You know, I went to junior prom was awesome. I was on the track team. I was on the football team. I was on the crew team. I became popular. You know what I mean? I did all these things, you know, I was like, you know, and um, I was angry. I was really angry. And I mean, I was kind of recluse and Columbine happened actually later. That was when my freshman year in college. Yeah. But at that time, I think some lady, African-American lady, because I think in Colorado, there was a little bit of racism, not a little bit. There's a lot of racism. There's something new that I never discovered before. There was like, like neo-Nazi type people and skinheads. They didn't really exist out East in the district, but they were out there. You know what I mean? So there's some lady, I think African-American lady, bus, and they said they're going to hang her or something. It was crazy back then. And, but yeah, but there's also something, there was like an Asian task force in Colorado too. So I guess Asian people were strong in a way. It was weird. I was like, what? And like, cause I guess they were stealing cars and stuff like that. And there was a task force just for Asian people. I went to some karaoke place, you know, when I was like 18. So I was in high school, no, that was after high school, but in high school I was angry. So let's go backwards. I'm like jumping timelines now. This is like all emotional now, but yeah. And in, in high school, um, I was angry. Um, I went to like mainly um, a white school, like, you know, it was white and Hispanic, but mainly a white kind of because my uncle was rich. Isn't that cool? I got to hang out with rich uncle. He drove me to school in a Mercedes Benz. Like we drove a Chevy Caprice, which was like a cop car converted and whatever. And you buy it like really cheap at, a, I guess, an impound or something. But uh, yeah, it was really interesting. It was different. I had I'd learned how people money think is different is totally different than the environment that I grew up in. There wasn't violence or anything like that, but I was still like violent back then. I think Tupac and um, there's a war of biggie, small East coast, West coast. Like you're from the East coast. And that's the farthest West I've been was Colorado. You know what I mean? And I was like, Oh no, I gotta be tough. I don't know what's going on out here. These people, you know what I mean? And yeah, I was just really angry. And, you know, I met other Vietnamese people. They're like, yeah, we should hang out. We're like sat little Asian things like their family of like four that went to high school and me and then knew another bit of me. So we had like five or six people. That's it. And everyone else was like American, white and Hispanic. Cause there's a lot of, you know, Mexicans were in the area that I lived in too, but yeah, it was okay. I just felt recluse and I didn't know anyone and senior in high school was kind of tough. And usually built up all these associations that I did, you know, back in Atlantic city. So it was like starting over. I didn't play sports i thought about it but i didn't want to do any of that i just slept all the time and all that and i guess i had a little bit of depression or whatever but i was like hanging out with some other like family that was kind of like not so thing like distant family and they like you know kind of like stole cars and something. i was like man these west coast people are like stealing stuff and things that's definitely different you know so yeah i mean like yeah there's that and college was columbine so there's a lot of violence in Colorado where I went, that's when that happened. That happened like about a few, like not even a mile from my, the college, the high, the college I went to. Um, so I did do national honor society and all that. I got my stuff together and I thought more and I was like, you know, my mom was poor her whole life. I was still poor, but I need to change my destiny. So I started studying more and things like that. And I focused and everything I did was because we didn't have money. I went to school for free. It was on a scholastic achievement. My mom didn't have to pay for it. She bought me my first car. She felt bad and she moved with me. She followed me, you know? So that was something that's really interesting too. She moved and brought her whole family to Colorado and they bought a liquor store. Isn't that funny? Um, 
So she was my entrepreneur role model and my uncle, of course. He owned shopping centers. Yeah. I don't know. Wow. But thank you so much for sharing that. You know, Sony, a lot of times I'm Asian myself and people just don't understand that the discrimination exists towards Asians. And then I think it's kind of brought up after the pandemic or during the pandemic that Asian people uh, kind of got really targeted. But then, you know, it's not the pandemic. It's just sometimes socioeconomic background and the discrimination really comes from, like maybe the inferiority complex, maybe that when you are in Atlantic City, luckily you had a sports and then you are a track star, football star, and then that aspect might have helped you. But a lot of times that if you can't find a niche when you're growing up and as an immigrant and then as somebody who didn't really speak English and not obviously looking like American, it's mm -hmm. so easy to be targeted. And then to navigate through on top of that, um, being financially disadvantaged, um, coming from different country and then different um, economical background, I think that is really, really hard. And then you said it in very fast pace and then very eloquent way, but the impact that you had experienced I'm sure that there are so much hidden emotions and anger. You said you were angry when you were shipped to Colorado. And then I'm sure that there are so many things that maybe you didn't even recognize that maybe you had a PTSD or depression growing up and anxiety, which we are talking more. But how do you describe growing up now thinking back your emotional stage, mental health stage, like how do you rate that? How do you measure that if you think back your well, childhood, I, teens? Well, I did have a lot of, um, uh, what do you call it, when you can't sleep, insomnia. I had major insomnia, so I didn't sleep much. And I think I was like, what's the purpose of life, you know? So those are kind of thought about. It's like, I don't know what the purpose is. Like money wasn't like a thing or things like that. And I think you're right. You know, when you're speaking about like Asians, like it's our culture that we're quiet and things happen. We just toughen up and just like get over it, you know? And like, you're, you're right. Like there are sports that kind of got into it, but I had a lot of friends or gang members too. So I had some protection, you know, like in Hispanic environment, especially. And since I did some football, like I not even like football and sports in high school, but also, we played a lot on the playground with other people. Some of these people I played football were in jail and they went to jail and they came out. So other people were afraid of them. Okay. So yes, it's good to have some friends that are like, you know, like that. But at the same time, it was still a different kind of culture, you know, because we weren't like fitting in, like you were saying, Asian. We're not white. We're not black. We're not Hispanic. We're just other. Like back then, you know, in the 80s, this is just classified as other. Like Asian people aren't all around. And especially where I live, I mean, in other places, I guess when I moved to Denver later in my life, they were recognized because I guess a lot of them came from California and they were like stealing cars and stuff like that. So they had a task force just for them. You know what I mean? 
So it was kind of like interesting seeing different parts of the country. And I would have never known if my parents never sent me out. And it's all out of love, you know, all that. But yeah, I had a lot of bottled up and pen and feeling like, you know, I had a long distance relationship with a girlfriend and I talked to her for like 12 hours or 10 from a phone booth. <laughs> so that was crazy. I, I forgot all about that too. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, um, yeah, I did that because, you know, I guess I couldn't connect with people around me or, you know, I didn't feel like the pain or ever. So I met back then, you know, you had AOL and it was dollar. You had to pay $3 an hour. I met an AOL, had an AOL girlfriend. <laughs> You know, I guess it was my first love too. So I, I really think about it. I was like, yeah, you know, yeah, that was great. I brought a chair to our phone booth to do that. So, because I got in trouble using the AOL dial up, like the bill was a lot. My uncle was like, what's that? And back then, I think it was Prodigy that you use for internet and AOL, you know? So, yeah, there's a lot of different emotions here. And I, I mean, like, I don't, I didn't, I didn't even think we were going to talk about any of this at all. So, you're really good at pulling these things out. And yeah. Thank well, <laughs> thank you so much for sharing it. And Sony, I just want to highlight the Vietnamese um, people went through, obviously, the whole country, the war, mm. and the trauma that created the poverty and the disadvantage from so many aspects. Just to let you know, my grandmother is a survivor of World War II. Oh. And I can relate to your grandmother that she was telling me, for instance, when she got diagnosed with cancer, this is when I came to America after I graduated. And then um, and when I came back to America, why do you, why do you keep back? And she's like, yeah, cancer is nothing compared to surviving World War II. Mm. I have... Home. I have family. Back then, she was orphan, and then she had no parents. She was raising the kids around her, and she said she didn't even have a detergent sometimes. So she had to burn something and use ashes to wash something, mm -hmm. right? Or and also, she survived a big earthquake uh, that happened in Japan as well. So level of poverty and hunger that people just don't understand that come from, come from war. And whatever the reason that adults and the politicians are doing, the significant effect comes to vulnerable populations such as women and children. And yeah. your grandmother was absolute victim of that. In the last word she said at, in 40s when she died that she wanted meat, she wanted to taste meat. That's yeah. like the saddest thing. And I remember, um, yeah, my grandma really sacrificed. And then after um, she married to my grandpa, but she became widow at like maybe 50s. A year before I was born, my grandma, grandpa died by car accident. So she really raised um, two kids on her own. And she didn't have like life for herself until she was in her 60s. So I can kind of see, imagine it's a different war, obviously, and the chemical was used in Vietnamese um, countries, Vietnamese, and then um, atomic bomb was used in Japan. Um, so it's just, we, obviously our generation didn't directly 
experienced that. But the struggle that you went through, the fact that you have to leave your own country, that your mom felt desperate to go somewhere else, otherwise maybe she wouldn't have survived, that is really messed up. And that's a direct effect from the war. And yeah. direct, it's called intergenerational trauma that you took on however you didn't experience the war. So how would you describe those kind of war background affecting you and your life? Have you thought about that? Well, I have. I think, yes, it did create like the extreme poverty and everything. But you know what it did also create? It gave the opportunity. And I, I know that a lot of times like for success and things to happen, some of the mentors and things that I have, I've been very fortunate to work with very successful people is that um, on the other side of pain and when you can solve that pain, then that's where you triumph and the struggle. Yeah, we were <laughs> tremendously poor, but we we're even poor in the United States. Like you, you say with your grandma is a cakewalk compared to before, you know what I mean? Like the war during the war or like us in Vietnam, you know, like, Literally, my grandmother died because we didn't have money to have a doctor, like, save her life. You know, that's really what happened. You know, you don't die from a cold. Who dies from a cold? No, you don't die. from. You don't die because you don't have the money to treat it. And it becomes probably pneumonia and a bunch of other things, you know. So I think that's the reality of it. But because of that sacrifice and we had strong women in our lineage and your lineage as well. That's why we're here today. And we're in a land of opportunity at the greatest time ever. And that's what we have to kind of look at it. Not at the negative part, because of their sacrifice, because of their struggle, because of their adversity is why we have our lives today. That's cushy compared to anything that they experience, you know, and even now people are complaining about that. And right now we have a war that's going on. That's displacing fathers are being killed in war, you know, wives and children are like out somewhere and people are kidnapping them, doing all kinds of stuff. These days, today, with this stuff, there's people that are like killing people, taking their organs. That stuff didn't really exist back then, you know what I mean? So it's getting like, the world's getting to be like a scary place, but there needs to be someone that stands up for them. And that's the people that have been through Like, see, yeah, it's intergenerational. We're feeling it, but we still feel those effects and we see it. But I think also that gives us the opportunity, since we can feel it, you understand my pain, I understand your pain, and we understand others, that maybe we can do something about it. I think that's where this is giving us more strength and power to recognize that, recognize where our ancestors went through and family members. And how can we go about it by looking at it from a positive kind of light? We're here because we felt that and we can change things because you have a voice, you have this show, you have Pike, you writing books, you know what I mean? I've done the same, you know, these things can spread more message to people so they can be more cognizant and conscious of the things that are happening around them since they didn't experience it. They can take it from us firsthand of our experiences absolutely so we're gonna save that for the tools part a little bit but i just really want to appreciate you because i never had a guest um coming from vietnamese and then i never had a guest who went through the starting from the boat experience yeah. and then coming to a different country and you know it's just so like unimaginable pain, unimaginable um, 
mental health issues and anxiety and you mentioned about insomnia i'm sure a lot more happened but we just did not have the language back then we just never had this kind of conversation in 80s and how would you describe in vietnamese culture or community like say for instance going to see a counselor growing up like in japan for instance sony that when i was growing up so like i said i was child sexually abused or physically abused and escaped from my dad when i was 13 and i tried to kill myself when my mom didn't believe me oh. so that's kind of a short story but then i was in japan back then that if i said somebody to somebody that i went to see a psychologist or counselor or on a medication i would be like targeted and i would hide it even at the companies for instance it's getting better i think but then back then if you say i'm seeing a counselor or something that you be totally discriminated so this is the second and third shock waves then initial um unfortunate like adversity that happened to you how's it in the vietnamese community like say you know in america growing up if you were to seek for help like that remember um there really isn't anything like that i mean like um first of all you don't even have people to speak the language <laughs> that's one problem you know what i mean and the people who did speak the language were poor too you know we're all just trying to survive in our little you know like community we were refugees from the war um so i don't really think there was like any kind of counseling all we had was like social services and since we we're catholic then we had catholic social services that would help us you know a little bit more get an extra stick of butter or something like that you know so that was um and some milk but that was it you know i mean like whatever like yeah mental issues and stuff you kind of just have to deal with it and um i guess it's it's more different today because there's many more people that speak the language um but back then there really wasn't like you barely had people that could speak english than to do anything else you know that was like freshman right when the war ended like people came here from vietnam and they just know a little bit more than you that's it it's not like oh yeah they can understand that so you don't have phd's and professors and stuff from vietnam none of that so i don't you know there's no counseling or anything like that so i don't really like know exactly like how that i think you just have to kind of figure it out i guess when you talk about how the united states is now i guess it's more like all right if i'm if you're in kindergarten then i guess i'm in first grade so i can help you out a little bit in kindergarten so that's the only kind of context that i can place on people that are dealing with that type of stuff and in the asian or vietnamese culture is like when you're being bad you just get the whip and that's it and you know back then yeah you, you know you have a chopstick and you break the chopstick and hit you more and hit you more so i think violent well i think i know violence culture is different today than it used to be not just american vietnamese society but america but it was violence like you would get beat like you know and that was it and women are more timid and introspective i guess and men you'd be dominant there would be the ones hitting people and things like that so i got hit a lot but i absorbed a lot of the stuff from my three sisters cuz i was like the eldest and my three sisters were all born here in this country you know and um yeah i kind of had the brunt of everything i actually not remembering more but i kind of ran away when i was three i was in third grade yeah i was in third or fourth grade in between those two grades and i wrote a note to my teacher at the time hey i'm not coming back whatever i from the violence i guess at home my dad beating me my uncle hit me too so it was kind of like a couple of those but 
he was an alcoholic too. And he was a gambler. And that, I guess that didn't really help things. He calmed down a lot. His life changed in the latter part of my life. But in the beginning, he just didn't think. And there's these vices. He didn't smoke until he moved to America. So got a lot of bad habits from that too, you know? But yeah, like my household, my mom was a strong woman that kept everything and did everything. If it wasn't for my mom, I wouldn't be here. But she's the tiger mom. She's the most difficult person I ever met, the most negative person I ever met and things like that. But I know that she loves me and I love her. But it wasn't until later in my life that I understood the love. I didn't understand it being young. I just like always like you being disciplined all the time, you know. You know, Sony, I want to mention that in Japan, we don't hug. We don't say I love you. Yeah, we don't do that either. <laughs> and that is so new. Like, I didn't know why people were hugging in America. Mm -hmm. I didn't know why my host family, host mom was kissing uh, my um, host grandma. <laughs> I, I had no idea the level of touch and affection and then saying I love you to people. That never happened growing up. So that's why affection and love and then validation is really lacking in Asian communication way. I don't say it's good or bad. It's just a cultural thing. So maybe I don't know many Vietnamese culture. I don't know much about it, but I, I'm kind of assuming it's kind of similar to Japanese culture a little bit yeah i think um that's asian culture you suppress feelings and things like that because it's not however and it's all out of respect and things like that that's very important in our culture and family is really thing but yeah you're right there was no i love you or any of that now i think back there is now when i were adults because we it indoctrinated in american society but that indoctrination also is kind of problematic because my three sisters were born here in this country None of them graduated college or anything. They had the opportunity and my family had money by that time. It's just, you know, kind of like things are given to you, you know, and you're not going through like the difficult times and you don't understand and see the differences maybe, you know, like I know what it is to be dirt poor. My family, my sisters don't really remember, you know what I mean? Because they're kind of been shielded more from it and they're so little that they don't remember by the time, you know, I was in like fifth or sixth grade, we had some money, we we're lower middle class, we weren't poor, you know what I mean? You know, but, you know, we had something, we had a house and everything too. You know, my mom got her first mortgage at 11% interest rate, saved up a little bit of money. So yeah, but I think also because that maybe they don't have that indoctrination from like America's like, ah, oh, you know, and they're not in that being, you know, I guess it's like, you know how like warriors are made, they're in the fire. They're doing difficult stuff. They're going through difficult situations. Like you're saying adversity, but they're learning how to be tough. And maybe my yeah. sister didn't learn how to be tough. <laughs> Everything's easy. It's like, ah, oh, okay, it's okay. Everything's okay. Well, you know, there's so When you talk about, like, I know you mentioned a little bit before that sometimes you don't feel this is, not deserving for me and then you give more to others and stuff so now how did this childhood upbringing and adversity affected your adult life in 30s and maybe early 40s right now 
Um, I think it goes back to that same story, which I didn't discover until I was with Tony Robbins. That's like one of the first memories, you know what I mean? Like memories I had. And I was like, what's the pain? And that pain came from that me like getting what I wanted, which was my mom's pocketbook. And now it's taken away because I got what I wanted. All bad things happened. So I thought that was my fault or I not, I felt like it was my fault. And you don't know as a three-year-old, you know what I mean? How this stuff works. And that's how I discovered it. And it's like, and I think, you know, that came not being worthy. It's like, I don't want anything. Cause if I do get what I want, it'd be bad. So I'll just let everyone else have what they want. But that's also Asian culture, you know, Vietnamese culture, you know, it's family, you know, whatever my mom wants, whatever my sisters want, it's not what I want. And I suppress that. But I think that's common in our culture. And that's something that is a great thing from American society, because even like even this year or even the last few months, I learned that, you know, I should stop suppressing who I am. And for me to be more I am, I got to focus on what is it I really want and go after what I want, not what everyone wants or what everyone thinks that you should do. And even in Asian or you know Vietnamese society, either you're a pharmacist, you own a nail salon or you're a doctor or something, that's what your parents want you to do. You know what I mean? And that's kind of the job that you're seeing some of the generations doing because that's what they feel like that's respect and all this other stuff, respect your elders. So yeah, I mean, like, I, I guess like that's common because along like the friends around my age is like, everyone's doing what they're being told to do. You know, it's not what they want. They don't know, know what they want. It's just like, it's been so indoctrinated. Hey, you should do this. You need to do this for your family, for everyone. Everyone expects this of you. So, you know. I completely get it. I was born and raised in Japan, and as a woman, and then as a young, outgoing, very different woman, I suffered with that. For in Japanese, we we have a saying "deru kui wo dareru," which means if you are sticky nail, that if there's a sticky nail, you get smacked. Hmm. Wow. So that means you can't be original, you cannot be unique, but you have to behave like everyone else. That's hmm. our culture, and I hated it completely. Hated it, and even. In my 40s, 46, um, for instance, that women are not really worthy without men kind of mentality. And my PCP was even telling me last year's physical, Jiri, you are in America. It's okay to be single, single mom. You are still worth it. And somebody has to reprogram my brain from this cultural pressure and biases instilled in me growing up. I would never walk in front of men. Like even if I would go on a date with a black man, like I would never like walk in front of him. And then one time he pushed me, why are you behind me? And you know, that's just how I was raised. And it just trained in my muscle to be submissive and then behave certain ways. And I'm not saying, either or i'm not saying that's good or bad it just it limits you you know what's wonderful though jury is that you are here in america now you get to be who you wanted to be when you were little you see that change and shift you're exactly where you're supposed to be hey that might have been 
the past or the history, but the future is in front of you. You get to be whoever you want. And now look at you, you know, you got this book, you got this show, you were doing the 75th episode. These are amazing things that maybe not been celebrated in past in Japan, but you're here and it can be. And maybe that might be where you can change the culture, even back in Japan. Like, hey, this is how it is. here. We're in 2000 now. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're going to another century. So things need to change and you can be the one to do the change. And that's what's lovely about it. You get to be you and that's where you find power, you know, when you're not suppressing yourself. And that's what I've learned from like one of my mentors named Ed Milet, amazing man. And it's just like, yeah, that's one of the things in society. We got to just be you. Just be you, Jerry. People love you. I love you here. This is great. You know, you're like pulling stuff out of me that I haven't talked about in decades. I know that. And I was like, man, I forgot about that. And I forgot about that. I, I suppressed all those feelings and emotions that didn't come up till now. So you're really good at bringing these things out, you know? Thank you so much. I appreciate you and respect you. And then I'm really trying to understand the adversity that you went through as I didn't go through that. But then, um, just learning a lot from you today. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Let's move on to the tools part. And before we move on, um, I just love this part of the podcast because we dissect a lot about um, adversity. But the reason why I love this format of the podcast so far is I didn't want to make it like just complaining and then you know, victim type of like the you know, whining type of podcast, but more so, like you said, inspire others and then giving them the tools um, that worked for them. A lot of times people say, oh, just go see a counselor. You'll be fine. It's not like that. It's not overnight fix for seeing counselor. So what did you use? You kind of mentioned a couple things, maybe a mentor that completely shifted you or worked as a tools to overcome these adversities? Yeah, I mean, like, I think the first thing that anyone should get is definitely a mentor that's been through what you want to go through and has done what you want to do. And I had some of like the best mentors on the planet, to be honest. And I didn't even know what problems I had until they were like, yeah, you need to do this, this. And I was like, oh, cause they've been there and they've done that. And I think that's one of the, best things I had, like I mentioned earlier, Tony Robbins, like Ed Dean Graciosi, you know, Ed, Ed Milet, you know, Oren Claff. I even had Grant Cardone before, you know, on like sales and Eileen Wilder. It's just like, you know, we stand on what they say, the shoulders of giants. Someone's already been there. We're just on there and just to give us the solutions to get there. And one of the tools that I derive from a lot of the mentors and a lot of the, you know, I spent like, $500,000 in coaching and being mentored and things like that. So I spent a lot of money to learn basically it's all emotions. I thought it's all like tactical. You got to do more stuff, but no, it's about emotions. I was like, Oh my gosh, can't believe this. And there's a formula I have. You ever had, um, there's, there's white cake in Vietnamese. They call it bao. Have you ever had a bite bao before jury? No. Okay. So it's a white cake. It's a meat bun. It's can usually got pork and an egg in the middle. And it seems, why do I say that? Because I, um, Actually, about a week ago, I just did a presentation for Vietnamese Business Investment Associations for all my brethren, people in the country. And I actually canceled Tony Robbins' diamond tickets where like that I spent like $15,000 for, you know, because I was like, what do I do? Do I want to help my people 
that where I was, you know, when I was poor and everything, or do I want to like, you know, be in front of a bunch of rich people and help them with their stuff? And I was like, you know what? I gave away my tickets to some friends of mine and I went to help my people. And it's so much more enriching. And I had developed like this thing called buying bow. So bow, let me start there. So that's a formula. B plus A equals O. So let's start with B for bow. So B stands for belief. A stands for action. O equals outcome. And I had an American first, but I had bang bow because I'm Vietnamese and all that. American is bag. Belief plus action equals goal, you know, or it could be the bar, you know, a lot of Mary, we like to go drinking. So be belief plus action equals results. You see, the word is the same. You can change interchange O, R, and G, and then you can have like pictures and stuff. But I, I like bang bow because outcome, um, you know, so basically on um, belief is like, have you ever achieved anything in a low state of energy? Hi, Jerry. And the question and answer to that a lot of times is no, you know. So basically high energy, you know, comes from like high income as well. So that's how it's connected on your belief. And basically when you think about your beliefs, are they positive or are they negative? And what are your thoughts about your beliefs, you know? And then you have to question that. And you're thinking, is it really true what your thoughts are? And you realize there, Jerry, that your thoughts are the same thoughts that your parents had, your grandparents, your great grand. When we were cavemen, we had the same thoughts. It's not like they changed. So they're not really your thoughts, you see. And when you think about that, it's like, that's interesting, isn't it? Right? They're not your thoughts. Other people have those thoughts. You're not the only one that ever thought of this ever, you know? And then we think about those thoughts. Like, do you think you have the potential to do whatever it is you want to do? You know? And then you think about how do you feel about these thoughts, you know, and then emotion actually would create other things. Like, how do you feel about it? And it's like, is it positive? Is it negative? How do you feel about it? Is that what you want? You know, and then is it a limiting belief? Which means that, hey, this is going to limit you and this will not give you the results that you want. And you think about how can this thought help you? You know, how can this belief help you? And then you ask yourself, is it empowering belief? Will it give you power? You feel strong from it, you know? And how can this help you? You know? So there is a model for success already. And we earlier we talked about mentors. They have a lot of these different models and things. And the, the thing about belief is, what do they believe? And that's it. What do they believe? Do you believe the same thing? That's a success model. And everything else, it comes from like an identity shift. That's why I learned from Ed Milet. It's like, you know, who do you need to become? That's where belief comes. You know, that it's be live. Who do you want to live? Are you living in a lie today of the person that you shouldn't be and you don't want to be or you're feeling negative and like how you're saying, hey, society back in Japan told you, no, you shouldn't be out going. You shouldn't be loud. You should invent and create new things. You just stay with the masses so no one recognizes you, right? Which is a lie because it's not you who you are or should be living your future self. And you decided to live in your future self, which you are today, a powerful woman. You see that? You're living and you want to be better. So you need to be more better. Like you tomorrow, just be like 1% better the next day. And that's how you live in the future. Because you know how you're driving a car, you look at a rear view mirror, that's your history and your past. But you look towards the future, that's who you want to be. You strive towards that. That's a goal. And you keep on going. And that's the power of belief. You need to believe in yourself or sometimes 
the word encourage means that you're putting encourage in someone else. And that's when you might need someone that loves you, that believes in you. Like my mother believed in me. I believed in her, you know, even though it was tough, tough, negative love. It was like, look, you need to be better. You need to do better. And I was like, okay, okay. Because I love you. I will, you know, and that's the belief in bow. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is a, so now we know beliefs plus action. A is the action. The action is doing, you know, how are you responding to your beliefs to get the results? Is it eeny, weeny, teeny, witty, itty, bitty, the results that you want? Or is it massive, ginormous, God-sized dreams where everyone, you know, you know, fits in this dream or this goal that you have? Now that's a belief, that's an action worth doing. You see that? And that goes back to the belief. My actions, like, do you believe it's going to happen? If you don't believe it's going to happen, you're right. If you believe you can do it, you're also right. You know, Ern Nightingale talks about like your mind is just a field. It's not agnostic. It's not positive or negative. You can grow corn, which food to eat, or you can grow poison, which kills and, you know, people. And that person you're killing is you and your mind, you know? So you think about that's the action and how you test this, you know, that I have about is the actions are based on belief. Like we said, you test it by your prior results. Think about it and quantify your actions. Were they little? Were they big? And it'll kind of make you think about, it's crystal clear, the outcome that you wanted. You, did you really believe you could do it or not? And your action proves it, you know? So it's a choice. And it comes to, do you really want it? You know? And the truth is the results aren't a lie. You know, the choices are the results or outcome. And do you really want it? One of my other mentors, like Grant Cardone taught me, is that whatever goal you want to achieve, you know, you figured out what action was required for that goal, which is, you know, the bag now, right? You know, so if you know what action is, you 10x that. So you multiply it by 10 and that's how much the goal is going to be bigger and what action you need. You 10x that action that you need to do to achieve that goal. So it's 10 times now. So if you hit that goal, if even you fail and you hit 10% of it, you achieve your initial goal because there's only one time. So that's just a mindset thing. Like what action that I need to do. So he believes in massive action. Now you have belief plus action equals your outcome or results. So you think about it, outcome, results, or goal. You know, Jerry, you're not a bake a cake, right? You believe that if you had the right recipe, the right amount of eggs, the right amount of flour, sugar, and everything, you make it perfectly like, you know, Martha Stewart or Betty Crocker. If you had the recipe, you can do it perfect, right? Good. So that's the same thing here. Well, the goal that you want, the outcome, right, is not what you're getting because the mix of ingredients, which is your actions and your belief, isn't right. That's why it didn't come out. I love brownies. So, you know, I have the recipe from it. I get it from Betty Crocker right from the thing. I make it perfect. And they're amazing. Every time they're the same. McDonald's does the same thing in that. It could be grandma's recipe. I don't have any grandma's recipe for that. My mother-in-law makes great um, bun bo hue. So that's like the spicy you know, noodle soup in Vietnam that they have that's beef. Oh my gosh, it's awesome. I'm trying to get my fiance to do the recipe for it because that's her mother, you know, <laughs> on that. But that's a secret on that. So the question is now you want your outcome or goals. Like what outcome do you want? You know, what do you want? The next question you have to ask is why do you want it? See, it's never like the money. And people always think it's money. It's like what you can do with the money, you know? 
Why do you want it? Is it to have a better family, to move to a better life, to have good schools so your children be, have a better life than you? Everyone wants their children to have better lives than them. You know. And then the next question, how would this make your life better? And this question, a lot of, especially Americans don't ask. And in Vietnam, my grandma made that sacrifice because for 10 children, my mother made it. My mother brought her 10 brothers and sisters, nine brothers, all from Vietnam, sponsored all of them here. And she was broke most of her life, but she gave them a better life. What do you need to sacrifice to get it? And that's what people forget, the sacrifices. There's always a sacrifice on anything that you want, an outcome. And then the next question you ask is, is it a must, right? And then are you interested in it or are you committed? Interest is like dating. So Jerry, you're like, hey, dating. I went speed dating once upon a time. I did 20 dates and thing. it was only five minutes. I loved it because I get to see 20 different people, you know, at the same time. But you know what? If you don't like one thing they said, no, I'm not going out yet anymore. That's just interesting. When you're committed is when you get married till death do us part. So in the outcome or your dreams, are you committed to doing that? So rich people, they say, make decisions quickly and change them slowly. While poor people, they make decisions slowly and they change them quickly. And that pretty much sums up the word commitment, you know? And so that's me, but buying bow, you know, belief plus action is outcome. And that's been a big driver for me. I have another one, but I don't, you know, know we have the time and everything, you know, with that. So I, I know that that'll help. That's helped me tremendously. Thank you so much. And I, I really commend you for where you are right now and that you finally realize that you come first and then your self-love and validation and the belief and action that creates the outcome that is serving you, not other people. And I think that is so important, especially us Asian, like that we put ourselves the last. We don't think about us. We, we don't, I don't think about myself. I think about yeah. my children, my friends, and I come last. And like my physical health, mental health is not stable. Therefore, it affects my children. And I, I learned that in a hard way. So I'm very, I'm very happy that I know you had shared so much of your struggle and adversity that you had to face. And I'm sorry for that. And I'm very happy that you had an opportunity to recognize it in your lifetime and then being able to deal with that and then being able to shift even in your mind. Because like you said, the mindset is the most powerful thing. And I didn't know that. And then the, the reason why this conversation is very important, precious to me, what well, this podcast is very like calling to me is that like yourself too, that we never ever had this kind of conversation growing up. And had we ever had this kind of resources, real people talking about their struggles and then real people talking about tools that they used to overcome i think we we didn't struggle this much i didn't i wouldn't have struggled three decades of my life figuring out self-love self-validation mm. i was in the podcast earlier um sex isn't that uh, pleasure 
sex isn't just the pleasure. I I'm like so grateful that I get on I get to be on the guest for different podcasts and give an opportunity to speak about child sex abuse and domestic violence. I just modeled for domestic violence awareness fundraiser, uh, Love Life Now Foundation, Love Life Love Life Now dot org, and I got to be with five female and five male domestic violence survivor wow. model one way. And then we never had that. I never ever imagined myself walking with DV victims with so such a beautiful clothes and makeup and hair and getting applauded by so many like attendees. And I was floored with the opportunity and love that I received. So Sony, I really appreciate this conversation, you have no idea how our conversation might help threshold and warp somebody's depression and then can save their lives in a way that we suffered. Yes. So I really appreciate it. And my last question for you is a gift that came from this adversity. So how would you say a gift that came from this adversity? A, a gift, I'm sorry? Yes, the gift that came from the adversity. The gift that came from the adversity is that um, I got to be who I am today because of all the adversity that I, I went through. And earlier you mentioned about something I definitely want to share. And this is where the gift came from. Like it was with a man named Russell Brunson, which helped me do a lot of marketing is that. See, I didn't recognize this about four years ago. It's like. And here's the thing, in order for me to be able to give more to the world, I have to learn how to receive. I suck at receiving because it's like you said, everybody first, but myself. But because of this, what this one man said, his name is Myron Golden that said that to me. And he was like, yeah, it just struck me. It hit me even like physiology. I was taking it. I was like, I want to give more to the world. But I don't know. I can't give anymore because I'm like almost at empty. I have to learn how to receive to replenish just like a car. You have to put more gas into it. So like that you can drive more. And that's why I paid him $30,000 to learn. And that was the most money ever spent. I didn't have it, but I had to find it because I wanted to learn how to give more to the world. And that was one of the big shifts that shifted me in doing more. And everyone that's going through adversity right now, I will tell you, you learning how to go through it. And once you've gone through it, you can help the next person that goes through whatever adversity you're facing now. And one thing, Jury, that you talked about earlier is like, hey, we never know. Look at take our care of ourselves first. Well, let me tell you this. I learned this from another one of my mentors is that, you know, why they always say the airplane. So I have kids, right? I have a four-year-old and a three-year-old. Why you should put the mask on your, your face first before you put on theirs first? Because you only have seven seconds before you black out. So if you black out and your kids are sitting next to you, you're going to depend on your neighbor to help them and save them. They're not going to be able to save your kids. You know what I mean? They might have their own kids or anything. That's why you need to put the mask on yourself first, Jerry, because when you are strong and you can survive, you can save them. And that really hit me hard. Too. I was like, you're right. And I didn't know why. I was here. And you're like, you don't know why. Why yourself first? Because if you can't save yourself, you can't save the other people that you love. And that's one thing I can tell you that really stuck with you. It's like, yes, you have children as well. You know, I saw your son there. You got to save yourself and do everything for you so you can do more for them and everyone that's in this podcast and the future guests that you have and your audience and all these other people. 
in the book and all these lives you're going to touch. That's why you got to be around longer to help others. So, yes. Well, thank you, Tony. I have a request for you. Two requests. One, give an advice for somebody who just came from Vietnamese and uh, Vietnam and then Vietnamese community and then people that maybe going through what you went through, what's your biggest advice that you can give to them that if they were struggling still? Make friends. Um, make friends with people that have done what you have, that with their struggle and just ask for help. See, the funny thing with asking for help is, and even Vietnamese people or a lot of Asians, we don't ask for help. That's not in our culture. We're trying to do it and tough everything out yourself. That's why it becomes harder, you know? If you ask for help, other people help you because they have been there. And if that person, there's another person to help you. And there's another person. And because they're helping you, that makes them feel good. Don't think you're taking away from them. They're giving to you too because that's how they were helped. Like me, I would help many, many different people in the struggles. Why? Because I've been there. People help me. And that's how I'm paying it forward. That's the principle that I learned. Ask for help. Someone will definitely help you. You ask enough. Don't ask one person to say no and think like you're not worth it. No, there's always someone to help you because they have been where you've been through. Someone's helped them and it's an obligation to help you. And that's just human kind, you know? And then will you say some message in Vietnamese? Oh, gosh. I, I You know, people speak broken English to Vietnamese. Well, I speak broken Vietnamese. So, um, you know, anh chị em đây, có người Việt ngoài đấy á, tại... Anh chị em biết nói tiếng Việt Nam á, mà mình nói biết nói tiếng Anh á. Tại mình biết nói tiếng Anh á, mình giúp được mấy người Việt Nam. And em ở đây, em giúp được anh chị hai em á. Nên mình có chuyện gì mà giống như vậy mà em hai anh thì giúp được á, thì em giúp. So I basically said that I'll help you, you know, because I speak Vietnamese, I'm Vietnam, and because I speak English, I have an obligation to help you. Wonderful. Well, thank you again, Sony, for coming to A Gift from Adversity, episode 75. And I really appreciate your time and sharing your story tonight. I love being here. And thank you so much, you know, Jerry, to have me share with your audience so we can help people. I love it. I love your movement. Great. And thank you again for our listeners. And then I will try to create more episodes and uh, we, I really appreciate it. My name is Julia Love. I'm your host. Thank you again, everyone. Awesome.